Hello, donkeys. Uh, today is Wednesday, September 3rd, 2014. My name is Luke Thomas. Welcome to the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. Today we'll go for about an hour and a half taking your questions, comments, bitches, gripes, and smart-ass remarks about all things in the world uh, of combat sports. Best way to get your question included, of course, is to go on MMAfighting.com. Uh, you may also tweet at me, at Thomas, and of course you can email me as well, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Very easy to understand what we're going to talk about. We'll recap UFC 177, look ahead to UFC Fight Night 50, look ahead to Bellator 123. Uh, there's lion fights, but uh, with Jorina Bars off the, or Yurina Bars off the card, I'm not too much uh, interested in it anymore, but it's certainly up for grabs as well. And really, anything else that you want to talk about, Ronda Rousey, Overeem versus uh, Rumble in the media anyway, all that is fair game. Just let me know. Uh, get your questions in. If they're on MMA Fighting, the ones that turn green because they get free recommendations, they get priority, but they do not get exclusivity, and I will try to get to all various mediums and questions that I can. I also had some folks crying last time that we were rambling, so I will try not to ramble this time. I'll try to get through as many as possible. Um, one other thing, by the way. We're on iTunes. If you're on your laptop or desktop and you want to download after the fact, please go there, subscribe, leave a nice review. We're also on Stitcher. So if you're on your mobile phone, I tried it out in my car. It works great. Get on Stitcher, leave a nice review, leave a, leave a nice rating. I, I need your participation in that regard. I can't go on there and just astroturf nice reviews for myself. They wouldn't even be believable anyway. So I need you guys to do it. And, of course, if you're watching this now, let other folks know you're watching. Get on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, when you're ordering your sub at Jerry's Subs, let them know you watch the podcast. Wouldn't that be great? That would be great. I don't know how effective that would be, but it'd be kind of funny. Uh, all right. So without further ado, let's get to these questions. I'm trying to make these intros shorter and shorter. You notice that? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, if you want to know all the links are for iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and everything else, it's always going to be embedded on each of these posts for this live chat on MMA fighting. So if you just go there, everything's linked up. Or you can just go to my SoundCloud, everything's linked up there. It really is not that hard. Google is your friend, my friends. All right. Today's disgustingly unhealthy soda. Diet Barks. Does it even have caffeine? I mean, otherwise, why am I drinking it? I think it does, yeah. Hmm, let's see, huh? All right, the Cruz comes back strong, Dominic Cruz, who I'm assuming you're referring to. It looks like his usual self against Takeda Mizugaki. Do you think you can take the belt from TJ? Um, yeah, I do. I think I think Cruz can compete with anybody in that division, provided he's the same one that we saw, relatively the same one that we saw prior to his departure from the division. I think that um, what keeps him in fights is that he doesn't take a lot of damage, and he is effective in terms of generating offense that judges value in all dimensions. Not so much in the sort of submission threat, although I suppose he is there as well, but um, he can score takedowns. He can push you against the fence. He is fairly large for the weight class. Um, he uses a lot of movement. I mean, it sounds crazy, but remember, these fights... If you don't stop somebody, they're one on judging. And what the judging tells us 
is that part of winning is performance art. If you don't just outright make it clear, I think that's how Diego Sanchez gets a lot of wins, not that, or at least a lot of rounds going his way. Is that it's hard to judge already, and there's just a lot of flurry of activity, and that can be hard to parse out what you're looking at. So, um, you know, not to say that he's doing the same thing Diego is, but just the constant movement, the constant footwork. I think that in itself matters. I think that uh, TJ would have a hard time sort of following what to do and to set up everything. In the case of Soto, Soto was moving a little bit, and certainly Burrell was not nearly as much of a flat foot. That allowed, that allowed the tempo of the footwork and the movement and the ring generalship, even on the outside, to be set by TJ. That would not necessarily be the case for Dominic Cruz. And again, as you saw in the Demetrius Johnson fight, now I know DJ Simpson was on flyway, but um, when things weren't necessarily going his way because he was getting tacked a little bit, Johnson was quicker. He could simply take it to the ground and use his size disparity there won't have the same exact size disparity opposite T.J. Dillashaw, but he certainly is not a small bantamweight, I'll put it that way. He's a sizable bantamweight, and he can make things happen. So, um, yeah, I mean, does that mean he'll automatically beat T.J.? No, I have no idea. But, again, we need to see what it looks against Mizugaki, which is by no means a given. But I think you can definitely see that somebody who uses a lot of movement, somebody that has uh, good accuracy, somebody that has... Um, the ability to counter T.J. Dillashaw is going to have some success. How much, we don't know, but some a measurable amount of success. And I think Dominic Cruz can be that guy, and because he can mix it up, and because he can defend a takedown, too. You know, So lots of reasons to think Dominic Cruz is still that guy advancing weight, at least in your mind. Whether or not we, he, we see that guy in uh, September, we're going to have to find out. Uh, since you didn't get to it last week, what are your thoughts on Brian Stan's comments regarding Kung Lu's physique and possible PEDs, considering... He works as a commentator for the UFC. For reference, he tweeted, quote, it doesn't pay, to, or it didn't pay to cheat for once. Good start to the day. Um, I don't know if Brian Stan knows something that we don't. Um, I will tell you that I thought his physique looked fishy as well. I mean, he has the best he's looked from a physique standpoint, Kung Lee, ah, in, in years. Now, maybe he just had a lot of time to train, and, and he has a great dietitian, and that's the answer. That's fine. I certainly have no... Uh, evidence of any kind of performance in drug use, and it wouldn't suggest any if I didn't. But I, I, would, I would also tell you that um, whatever he's doing, it's working. You know, so no, I don't mind it at all. Um, people call that sort of thing irresponsible. I admit, maybe it is. You can make a strong case that it is, but I, I just don't know. You know? Um, I'll tell you this: Am I going to bed at night rolling around with a cold sweat, worrying if Brian Stan has somehow? Marred Kung Lee in an unfair way? No. No, I don't. <laughs> Do you care about Betch Cahaya yet? Um, yeah, listen, guys. Listen, what do you want me to say about Betch Cahaya? She has a, the record of, I think the UFC record of the people she's beat in the UFC is like one and four. Um, you know, God, it all sounds so disparaging, but like, how do you pump the brakes on someone without talking about the importance of their flaws? It's just not possible because I think we'd all agree that we'd say, well, let's hold on a second now. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Everyone's sort of on board with that idea, especially when it's warranted, and I think this is a case that's warranted. And yet to do that, to make that argument, to complete the brake-pumping act, you have to underscore some of these fatal flaws. Guys, um, I have no idea how she's going to be able to handle Ronda Rousey in the clinch, except if she lands a hard shot. Um, she did have an onslaught there on Shayna Baszler, but Rousey is quicker. Rousey's, one thing you guys don't really 
I should say one thing that Rousey critics don't really accept is it's the same in all grappling sports, even with or without the gi. Your gripping is, is the, I've said it before in this chat, it's the most important thing. Dude, when she gets that grip around the neck and under the arm and she puts her hips in, you are going for a ride, and she gets it in quick. And part of the way she does it is to get people to throw overhand punches. Now, Betch Cahaya is pretty good. She mixes it up a little bit. I'll definitely give her credit. She was going upstairs and downstairs, and she was, she was hitting it with the rib roasters on side to side. She's not just up and down, but left and right, right? And so, and so, and, and she didn't quite mix up her kicks in that particular final uh, strike dump, but, but yeah, I mean, she's a competent kickboxer, right? But I just have a hard time seeing how a quicker, more explosive athlete who sets up her grips and has dominant throws is going to have a hard time putting her on the ground. And on the ground, Betch Cahaya is certainly not, like, uh, out of her element by any stretch of the imagination, but she's at a comparative disadvantage there too. So yes, Betchohea can crack. There's no doubt about it, um, and that was certainly always a possibility. You have to consider against someone like Rousey, who the the the, the 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 she's still working on distance closing. She's still working on managing her own strikes as a part of that. And so as a consequence, she eats a few shots, and those can change. We all we all watch MMA. You know how fast that can change a fight. If that's something you want to lean on as probability for her chances to win. Feel free. For me, that's not the greatest evidence of future success against Rousey. Rousey setting up, setting up that grip is crazy. It's crazy. So for me, what I would have wanted to see is, you know, just absolute dominance in the clinch, never losing an underhook battle, getting in and out of the clinch whenever she wanted to, threatening takedowns from upper body and lower body from the clinch. I, I, I simply don't see Betch Cahaya being that person. But, you know, does she look bad against Shayna Baszler? No, absolutely not, you know. Good submission defense. Again, that final onslaught was great. She's obviously heavy-handed for that weight class. A lot of reasons to be say she's a good fighter. But if you're sort of positioning it against, it's one thing to be a good fighter and then position good fighter relative to good enough to be Rousey. And they are very far apart. Should Cub take lessons from Betch on how to promote himself? For a fighter who doesn't speak English, she sure as hell knows how to promote, promote herself. Well, Cub and maybe a lot of other fighters. Yeah, I think we talked about this briefly on the chat last week. Positioning herself next to Ronda Rousey. Um, oh, this camera is shaking like shite. Yeah, let's see if we can do something about that. As you can see, my beard and hair are completely out of control because uh, I haven't got a haircut in a while. There we go. That should be better. Um, get one Friday. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So, so she positioned herself next to Ronda Rousey, right? Like, I'm going to be far. I'm going to take on the four horsewomen. And, you know, once you get to Rousey, the, the task of defeating her becomes exponentially more difficult than it does to individually beat Justin Duke or Chandler Baszler. But, you know, you can sort of direct interest by taking on the very manageable tasks that are anchored by this huge promotional entity. It's very, 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 very clever, you know, and using the hand signals, which is sort of universal language, you know. Um, super smart. I'll give her credit there, man. Totally give her credit there. She, she did a really, really good job. You know. This one wasn't uh, wrecked, but it got two of them. So I shouldn't say it wasn't turned, didn't turn green. Who would you give the edge in each department in the Jacare Musasi fight? Striking, I would give Musasi the edge. Wrestling, definitely Jacare. Jiu-Jitsu, obviously Jacare. Cardio, probably, probably Musasi. X-Factor, Musasi too. Yes, I would, I would agree with just about all we, all we put there. 
Alexander Gustafson not wanting to fight Anthony Johnson. Gustafson recently said he wasn't interested in fighting Anthony Johnson because the fight wouldn't take him anywhere, which is right, it wouldn't. And he's thinking tactically about his career. I want to see them fight, but I also want to see both Gustafson and Johnson fight Jones. I would think that the loser wouldn't. I would think that the loser wouldn't lose much ground. Gustafson being smart about waiting for the title shot. Someone responds, also strange that Alex doesn't think Rumble has beaten anybody to deserve to fight him. I'd say I wonder if Phil Davis is arguably better than Gus's biggest win, which is Shogun. Um, right, well, it doesn't take him anywhere. He's right. I mean, he's already there. The problem with the title shot was, was booked in a title fight until he got injured. What does beating Johnson do? Keeps him right in place. And, of course, you have to train, risk further injury, risk getting knocked out against Johnson. I'm not saying he would lose to Johnson, but certainly you can't fight Anthony Johnson without wondering, gee, am I going to get KTFO here? These are all like really relevant concerns that you have to have. It, does the risk outweigh the reward? Guys, how many times in your life, if you're a fighter, any fighter anywhere, pick one off the planet, how many times in your life, if you're not a title holder, if you're seeking to gain a title, how many title top shots are you going to get in your life? You're going to get less than, well, first of all, the overwhelming majority of fighters, you're not going to ever get one. Some are going to get one, a couple are going to get two. That's it, man. If you don't make it happen then, good luck. Good luck, unless you change weight classes or something else like that. And Gustafson, to me, does not seem like a prime candidate for either heavyweight or middleweight. So, so we live in a world where as much as, and I, think, I don't think Dana White or UFC brass are wrong in saying, well, here's our case for that. Our case is that you have about a 10 to 15 year window to fight. Probably not 15, probably closer to 10, 10, 11, or 12. You're going to fight as long as a dog lives, basically. More or less, a big dog. That's that's all you really have. Um, and so, in that window, the longer you sit, the less opportunity you have to make money, the less opportunity you have to establish a career, establish a legacy. I think they're also right that if you go back and look at the better fighters alive, they're not typically ones that have these prolonged periods of inactivity, with some exception, obviously. These are all fair points, but when you're a fighter and you're in the middle of this, and you're thinking it through, and you're weighing the costs and the benefits, and you're already there, and you kind of feel like maybe, I'm sure Gustafson, fairly or unfairly, feels like, why is Cormier in my spot? This is ridiculous. I cannot believe I have to sit here while these two jokers fist by each other in the hotel lobby, and I'm, and I'm here waiting. You know, I can understand his perspective. I, again, what, is it the same calculation I would make? I don't know. And in the end, simply due to financial constraints, he might be forced out of it. We'll see what happens. But, um, uh, and also I think it's really important to see what happens in the actual January 3rd fight between Jones and Cormier. Because remember, I said it last time. If these guys come out and it's super close and people are demanding automatic rematch, what is Gustafson going to do? Wait forever? Then, it's, then his calculus becomes very different. But you should never underestimate how you as a fan come back and listen, we watched the title fight last weekend and there's a title fight uh, this weekend, at least with Bellator. But, you know, still, it's hard to, I mean, Juicy Pitbull's been, clamoring for that for a while, you just don't get many of them. You do not get many of them, especially in the UFC. And so when they come, you want to do everything possible and never let it go again because you don't know that if, if he fights Johnson and he loses, he may never get it again. right? And maybe you beat Johnson 9 out of 10 times, but maybe he beats you that 1 out of 10 times. Like George St. Pierre and Matt Serra, if they fought 100 times, I'm fairly confident GSP would win upwards of 95 of them, if not 98, 99. But it just so happened that you know, on that one time, the first time they fought, 
was the one time St. Pierre was going to lose. That could happen to anybody. And St. Pierre was good enough to come back and, and you know, he's one of the best fighters ever. You get the idea. I, I mean, I, I understand fan sympathies or, or, or perspectives saying, well, Jesus, man, like, you got to get it together. You can't just be inactive forever. I understand UFC management. They also want to use him. I get all that. And I would be telling you, who doesn't want to see Gustafson versus Rumble fight? At the same time, though, that coveted moment may never, it may literally never come again. You can take the risk to fight it, and everything you worked for, everything you had, everything you were promised is now gone forever. Think about that. Uh, Titan FC announced yesterday the signing of Chabalat Shamalayev. I believe they signed Des Green. Yep, they signed Des Green as well. Good signings for Titan. Des Green's a little boring. Um, very good fighter, but I am a little curious about how he's going to move the needle. Shabalat Shamalayev doesn't have a good name, but he'll certainly be good for the people in attendance to watch him compete. Um, so he's good in that regard. But yeah, I mean, they're probably not very expensive. We know they're credible talents. It helps Titan move the needle a little bit, but, um, you know, I wouldn't call it the most dramatic signing ever. Weight cutting. Is there anything that the UFC can do to help with the issue of weight cutting? Or should the responsibility be left solely to the fighter and their camp? Also, did you hear John McCarthy, big John McCarthy, of course, on the MMA Hour talk about how he thinks fighters should be assessed by doctors and given a weight they are not allowed to weigh in below, come the weigh-ins? Could this work to ensure weight cutting is done safely? Boy, what a difficult problem. Um... What a very, very difficult problem. I am telling you now, in the short run, there is not much they can do. Weight cutting is an issue that I firmly believe the UFC will have at least some ability to address as time goes on. But it's the same thing with performance-enhancing drugs. Yes, I think we can look to a future in the 10 years when UFC is uh, more globalized. You know, we don't know how that's going to work out, but there's some reason to believe it's going to be successful in parts of Asia and parts of Latin America. I think that will expand the number of weight classes. As weight classes expand, I think in between the spaces that we have now, um, so not just at the ends, so in other words, not just down to 115 or, I don't know, we'll make super heavyweight, but something like that, but in between the spaces as well, I think that will help address the issues. There needs to be at some point when, the, when there's enough talent, uh, a reformation of somehow doing the weight between 185 and 205. It's a massive drop, you know. It's a massive drop. And still, 185 to 170 is a big drop, too. And then 170 to 155, it's huge drops, you know. But you look at what, um, the, the basic, so my so point there is UFC will be able to address this in some capacity, but it's not clear what any other promotion is going to be able to do about it, you know. I think we have to kind of accept that. UFC can sign the water code tomorrow, and I wrote about that, and you can look at all the things they have to do, cooperation with law enforcement, contributions towards scientific research, you know, year-round, uh, um, uh, uh, random testing up to three or four times a year for all 500 fighters globally. All kinds of stuff they have to do. And they could do all that. What does that mean for Bellator? What does that mean for World Series of Fighting? What does that mean for King of the Cage? What does that mean for Explode Fight Series? What does that mean for anybody? Nothing. It means absolutely nothing because they simply don't have the resources and the infrastructure to make water code signing a reality. It's the same with weight cutting. Well, it's very, very similar. If you look at how, after 1998, when three wrestlers died in the span of like 33 or 37 days, you look at the measures that the NCAA took, they took them because they could, which is to say it was very, very comprehensive efforts, and they've actually gotten uh, even more strict as time has gone on. 
guys do cut weight still a little bit. I mean, I think some kind of competitive advantage there guys are always going to seek, but it's, it's pretty well measured out in advance. In fact, you have to have what's called your MWW, your minimum wrestling weight, figured out at the beginning of the season. Rules for changing weight classes are very, very difficult in the NCAA. But more than that, they ban the use of saunas. Guys putting bikes in saunas. Wrestling rooms can't be more than 75 degrees at the beginning of practice, um, which I can tell you makes a huge difference. Um, uh, and there's, there's hydration tests that they do, uh, uh, specific um, gravity urine tests. Make sure your urine is neither too high nor too low. You can only lose 1.5% uh, um, pound of body weight per week during the weight, uh, weight loss period. All kinds of ways um, that they can measure and monitor you through this athletic department infrastructure and this wrestling infrastructure. They can monitor what you're doing, they can measure what you're doing, and they can follow you, and they have mat side weigh-ins up to two hours um, before, before matches. And you could say, well, there you go, mat side weigh-ins, that's the issue. But those mat side weigh-ins only are accompanied by all these other measures. Simply going to mat side weigh-ins in MMA without the other things that the NCAA is able to do all the way down would be disastrous. For the reasons John McCarthy brought up, you have these lighter weight guys who cut a lot of weight, and they're the ones who are getting a dehydration, uh, um, you know, um, they're the ones who are feeling the effects of dehydration the most, including to what extent their brain is being jeopardized by that. You know, so so yes, the answer is: is there more that the UFC could do? Well, I suppose, but how on earth are they going to afford to do that? How on earth can you monitor all these guys all across? These are grown men. These are not part of athletic departments that are regulated by the NCAA that are overseen to have NCAA regulatory compliance to worry about that and to have the ability to then measure these guys via testing, um, you know, with the specific gravity test, urine test, and the hydration tests that go into it. And, you know, they have more, they have more weight classes to go around there. It's, 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 a, it's a very, very difficult problem. It's a very, very difficult problem. NCAA is in a position where they're able to address it. And, again, long term, there might be some things UFC can do, additional uh, extra weight classes, um, maybe having doctors clear these guys about what they can't go below. I think that would certainly help as well, as John McCarthy mentioned. But the 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 ability of the NCAA and these Division One and Division Two and Division Three programs to oversee their own talent, to be to have to be in regulatory compliance with it, um, to have scientific measurements at a very meticulous degree for long periods of time, so you know guys aren't really fluctuating up and down too much, that's not really available to the UFC in its current iteration. There's not, there's, the best the UFC can do can't match that. It's not a knock on UFC, it's just the reality of two different methods. One is an amateur sport that is um, you know, filled with amateurs, that is uh, part of a collegiate system, that is bound by all kinds of regulatory compliance, um, by a, basically a third-party association, and another is a prize-fighting sport filled with independent contractors spread out globally. How on earth can you have the same level of oversight? It's just not possible. So I don't know what the UFC is going to do. I mean, there's probably some better ideas out there. I, I'm not saying that there's nothing they can do, but this is one that there are not a lot of automatic answers for, and there's not one that the kind of, um, you know, there was a certain mobility that the NCAA had in the wake of those wrestlers dying, they were able to enact change pretty damn quickly. 
And now it's relatively effective. You don't really hear weight-cutting nightmare stories like you used to. I'm sure you hear some. Derek St. John is a great wrestler out of Iowa. I think a lot of people thought he cut too much weight. So, yeah, it's not a foolproof system, but it's just not one that's available to the UFC in the current way things are work. I just don't know how they would do it. Hyperbole. At what point does the UFC, especially its public face like Rogan and White, realize that hyperbole has diminishing returns? Every new guy they're selling is the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world, or the most exciting fighter ever. Do they, do they understand that the more they use hyperbole, less it will actually work in helping their business? Yeah, I don't know. Because if you watch, like, Max Kellerman and um, oh, uh, Jim Lampley talk about fighters, I find their honesty to be rather refreshing. They tell you this guy is a talent and he's facing a club fighter. It's a different relationship, obviously, where HBO is not the promoter of the events. Top rank typically is. Um, and so they're able to have this editorial flow. But UFC doesn't really believe, from a production standpoint, in having guys with the ability to make editorial comments about the nature of their matchmaking or quality of their fighters. Um, I certainly think there are diminishing returns about it. At the end of the day, is it the most pressing issue about what the UFC does or does not do? No. But I would agree with you that, that it is um, it does have some kind of effect on their ability to promote a show because it's really hard to differentiate what's what. Although I think in the end, though, the market has basically decided for them. There's a few guys that they actually believe absent the marketing or in spite of the marketing or maybe because of the marketing. It all depends who they really pay attention to the most, the Velasquez's, the Jones, the Rouseys, and so forth, and the rest sort of become interesting filler to less interesting filler to basically unknown filler. Um, would that change dramatically if they had a more honest approach by the guys that were signing? Maybe a little bit, maybe in some cases more noticeably than others, but on balance, it's not, it's, it's not I, don't, I don't agree with them doing it, but I don't think it's the most pressing thing. Of all the list of things I think they could change, that would not be top of the list, I don't, I don't think. Uh, UFC's partnership, I think someone asked this last week, UFC's partnership with Flash Entertainment. As you know, a few years back, Zufa entered a partnership with Sheikh Tahoon, Flash Entertainment, which gave Flash 10% ownership of Zufa. Has this deal actually been good for the UFC? Uh, yeah, they said it was going to be the, it was going to be part and parcel to them breaking into uh, basically what used to be known as the Orient, everything from Middle East uh, on East. Um, so they've had some struggles in that regard. I mean, there's not too many places you can go to in the Middle East that can facilitate, I think, a mixed martial arts business. Jordan certainly will be on the list. Um, parts of Northern Africa. Well, not all parts even, really. Um, you get the idea. It's, it's, it's slow pickings. Turkey certainly has, has actually held a number of glory shows. Although, you know, now we're sort of getting into Indo-Europe. But, um, but um, anyway, long story short, um, certainly their efforts into China have not have not borne the fruit that they would like. But I discussed this last week. I can't get too much into it. To what extent we can position that as a failure of the Flash deal, there's not enough information, I think, to make a definitive conclusion about that. Uh, Hector Lombard versus Tyron Woodley. This fight has been hinted at, excuse me, this fight has been hinted to headline the UFC Fight Pass Guard in Sydney. Woodley, Woodley apparently wants no part of Lombard. My choice to take the high road, preserve my integrity, protect my team, and keep my testimony is hard but needed. What do you make of Woodley not taking such a big fight for the welterweight division? And if they do end up fighting, who would you have winning? Oh, 
Who would I have winning? I would probably have Woodley winning if he could survive the first round. Also, it would depend if it was a three or five round fight, especially if it's a five round fight. Um, in that first round, I would favor Lombard heavily. After that, I don't know. Why Woodley doesn't want to take it if, in fact, because what Dana White said was that Dan Lambert out of American Top Team was okay with it. If that's the case, um, you know, I don't know what Dan Lambert, I've never, I've not corroborated that independently with Dan Lambert. But if that's the case, one has to wonder, uh, God damn it, blowing up my phone, son. All right. He's hinting that it's a measure of team integrity or the protection of the, of the team and not wanting to have guys face each other. Um, yeah, that's a difficult one. That's a really difficult one. Because you had solidarity in the ranks, you know, before with, like, Koscheck and Fitch. They were both like this. Now, Lombard is a union scab, <laughs> right? And I mean, not literally, of course, but, like, you get the idea. He's, he's willing to cross the picket line to work with management. Um, that changes things a little bit. I don't know. I don't. Without talking to Tyrone Woodley and getting his side of the story, it's really sort of difficult to pinpoint who's, quote, unquote, at fault here. Um, but I would encourage everyone, until Woodley has spoken about it definitively, to, to not rush to conclusions. It may simply be the case that Woodley just doesn't want to fight Lombard for BS reasons. It may be the case that he has very good ones he doesn't want to fight him for. And again, I have, an I have an independently verified things with Dan Lambert. I would just really be cautious about accepting whatever the public line out there is or letting your own disappointment about a fight not being made color your perspective about who's at fault for it not happening. You could be right, your hunch might be right, but you have to really sort of collect a fair amount of information. Something Woodley has um, a huge track record as a guy who ducks. And he, in facing Lombard, it wouldn't be a guy who he didn't have some training experience against, although that could be positioned another way, which is to say training hasn't gone so well for him against Lombard, and maybe that's the reason why he doesn't feel like facing him at this point. Um, maybe he feels like if he waits to that, he'll be in line for a title shot. But the way in which the fight with Kim went down was, while dominant, it wasn't the kind of... I, I honestly feel like it would have been better if he would given him a three-round beatdown in all positions. Because the way he knocked him out, it's like he took advantage of a guy who was basically fighting just unbelievably low fight IQ. Not that I think Dong Hyun Kim has it, but this, this adoption of super risk that he's taken is just untenable for beating the best guys in the division. You're going to try and be a crazy, wild-ass, feral animal in the, world, in the top of the welterweight division? Good luck. Good luck, because you're going to need it. Those guys are going to cut you to fish bait. That will work just fine against guys outside the top. Maybe not, maybe not just fine. It'll work a lot better against guys outside the top ten. You want to try that against top ten, top five guys? You are going to get run over. It's just not going to go well for you at all. And so if he wants to be more exciting that way, that's fine. It's his prerogative. It's his brain to risk injury to and the rest of his body and whatever else. He's a grown man. He can fight however he likes. But the way in which it ended, the quickness in which it ended, it got Woodley back in the horse. It got him in the conversation. But it wasn't really enough to be like, whoa, this guy is like right at the front of the pack. He's, 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 he's quote-unquote in the mix. He's there. He's relevant. That's why he's given this other contest. 
but there has to be some kind of resolution with Lombard. I don't think the UFC wants to move forward without figuring out where Lombard fits into the whole equation. We have some idea about Woodley, given the thorough nature, for example, in which he was beaten by McDonald. But there's a, that, that, that unresolved issue with Lombard, I just don't think the UFC wants to move forward without figuring out what they're going to do with him. Um, and it fell on Woodley's lap. I would love to know why he, he, he declined it. Um, conflict of interest. I remember once hearing Gano had once stated he couldn't manage Tito and Chuck when he had applied for a promoter's license. It would have been a conflict of interest, so he had to stop managing Tito and Chuck as fighters to get his promoter's license. How come all these promoters in small organizations are allowed to have that job and manage fighters they promote as well? Um, because I don't believe that they promote and manage the same guys. Right, so I think, for example, Ed Swords is a manager to Anderson Silva, um, and they may certainly sign guys out of Black House. They may not be guys he manages, um, so he can he can promote them and manage the others. Uh, but I also feel like um, the regulation around boxing is a little stricter in this regard, at least from a federal standpoint. Um, certain states may have more lax regulation about no, no, they've gone. I believe. Let me check something out here. Let me see something about RFA shows. I believe I could be mistaken now. Let's see: Nebraska, Wyoming, California, Colorado, Kansas City, Nebraska. Yeah, they've been. They've been to. They've certainly been to. I remember that show in Nevada. Yeah, so they've been to Nevada. It, it simply must be the case that there are. It's two different groups that they're doing that in. But I think that in boxing, I think you're only allowed to do one or the other. I don't think you can even do both, um, even if it's a separate group of people. I could be wrong about that. I'm looking for some clarification, but I believe that's the, uh, I believe that's the way it works. Somebody listening to some loud-ass news here in the office. Let's see. True false. Diego Sanchez will retire within the next 12 months. False. Nate Diaz will fight in 2014 or won the January card in 2015. Maybe true. UFC will have to cancel the pay-per-view in 2015. True. John Anik and Brian Stan should commentate the majority of UFC shows. Yeah, I like them. Demetrius Johnson will lose his flyweight title to either Lineker, Dotson, or Benavidez. False. Lineker Medov will become UFC lightweight champion before 2016. True. Kevin Kelvin Gastelum is a future title contender at welterweight. Potentially, I'm not ready to annoy him that, that just yet, but maybe. Also, Overeem and Anthony Johnson will fight at heavyweight, and Johnson will win by knockout. Stranger things have happened. Uh, what if the UFC were to make Johnson versus Overeem? They'd probably have to make it at light heavyweight, and it would be amazing, but I don't think they will. That's going to be a hard one to capitalize on, because you want, you want to find a way. Because the problem is, Overeem is not entirely out of the title hunt, although he's not certainly at the front of the pack. And Johnson is all in on the title hunt at light heavyweight, even with the log jam with Gustafson and Cormier and the injury to Jones. But he's still right there, pulling them aside for a fight where almost for sure the loser is going to be um, stretchered out is just too risky. But potentially down the road, they might be able to make something happen. 
Justin Scoggins, due to flyweight divisions being relatively thin, excuse me, thin, do you think Justin Scoggins is being pushed along faster than he should be? He is still young, yet in his third UFC fight, he was given a very tough Dustin Ortiz, and is now being matched up against the previous title challenger in John Moraga. Should he have built up slower so he can carefully develop his skills? I would think so. I would think so. Um, yeah, same with Sergio Pettis. Those guys were, should have been given more. I'm sure, listen, the UFC may have been like, hey, we think they're ready. Plus, they would be great to have as promotional tools. I believe Sergio Pettis, if I'm not mistaken, did he not debut on that Milwaukee show? Was it 164? Could be wrong about that. I think he was at least on the Milwaukee show, right? The Chicago show. That's right, they didn't get him for the Milwaukee show. That's right. Um, they got him for Las Vegas, and then they got him for the Caceres fight in Chicago. No, they haven't gotten there yet. But I certainly think the UFC would probably like to get their hands on guys who can fight at that level and can be promotionally valuable to them as a means of drawing people to the gate. And the Pettis brothers certainly have a strong uh, following, probably in the Chicago and uh, certainly the Milwaukee area. But Scoggins, I don't know that he's necessarily the biggest draw ever in Florida, but um, Scoggins, you're, you're going to get these guys, man, that are just going to tear through people at the lower level of the regional circuit and then have some issues dealing with the guys at the higher end of the divisions in the UFC, which they're naturally going to catapult themselves to. They have to sort of feast on guys. There's, they, they need to resist the temptation to make the jump right away, even though they can. There's something to be said for staying in training camps, developing skills, getting physically bigger, because a lot of guys still grow to 21, 22, um, and just feasting on guys you can feast on for a little while longer than they may feel automatically comfortable. So that by the time you do jump, you really know for sure, no doubt about it, these guys are all behind you. And Maybe Scoggins jumped a little early. I certainly think Pettis jumped a little early. I don't think any question about that. Uh, guy with a tremendous amount of skill, but still kind of coming into his own. Still hasn't quite figured out all the ways in which he likes to win or push and develop the kind of killer instinct. That's the other thing. Like on the regional circuit, you get a really good opportunity to, to work on your finishing skills because it's going to come a lot easier. And you're going to have to take those lessons and the ways in which you set it up to the higher levels. And that's going to be very difficult, but you need that experience to usher in to the higher levels of the game. If you don't get it, you're not going to develop it later in life, or at least most guys often don't. Uh, there's some exceptions to that. I think Roy Nelson has only gotten better later in life. But not, not, not that he was a poor finisher to begin with, but he's become much more um, lethal about it. Same with Mark Hunt, although that, that I think was always lurking. But you get the idea. Um, so, you know... We know that they can fight at the UFC level. The question is, are they going to maximize their ability long-term to be the best fighters they can be by jumping this early? In the end, they may both work it out. They may figure it out as they get older. I just hope that... And by the way, I thought Scoggins beat Ortiz. Close. Not mad that he scored it for Ortiz. It's fine. I'm not going to argue with you if you scored it for him. I scored it two rounds for Scoggins, and I think he's going to beat Moraga too, by the way. But, um, but, but I see your point. There is a case to be made that a little bit of overkill for blue chip prospects at the regional level is okay, even if there's an urge and even an ability to move on uh, at a quicker pace. And I do love Justin Scoggins, by the way. Um, 
GQ, true or false, obviously Dana White doesn't deserve to be compared to all the people on the GQ list, but true or false, they're underplaying UFC employees. Well, I have no idea about UFC employees, but I do believe that fighters can make a lot more money. Uh, bullies rivals, they are aggressive competitors. Uh, generally, a person named Don King is a bold white guy doesn't do one of your first. Well, the Don King first is just stupid, but, um, you know, the fighter pay issue. I made my position pretty clear about that. Ben, also, Don King and Dana White could not be more different. Um, ben Askren, after winning the 1FC title last Friday in a one-sided beatdown, where does he go from here? Um, he's going to find another number. <laughs> and he's going to collect a big fat paycheck doing it. And it's going to drive people crazy because it's going to give Ben Askren the ability to go out and position himself as the world's greatest underutilized welterweight who's getting paid a lot of money to do that and run his AWA wrestling camps and um, do media and be awesome at doing media. Like, however much you don't... First of all, I love the way Ben Askren fights, but however much you don't like Ben Askren as a fighter, he's, he's like, like, undeniably pound-for-pound pound top ten media interviews right, right now. Not ever, but right now. Ben Askren is a fun-ass interview, man. Do you hear him on Aaron Hall on his MMA Hour? It's like, how do, you, how do you not like what this guy says? Even if it's not, it's not like agree or disagree or whatever. It's here's a guy who, right or wrong, has his own perspective and is willing to share it in a compelling way. Um, you know, arguments about what he said about Dana or how much he likes 1FC or mainland China or whatever else, you can figure that on your own. You're all reasonable, uh, intelligent adults. You know, I suspect most of you are anyway. Watching this, you gotta be. But nevertheless, um, yeah, I don't really, I don't really see this as an issue about, um, you know, let's 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 be politifact and like, you know, fact check what Ben Askren has to say. It's more about like, here's a guy who finally he does have some interesting things to say, of course, but it's more about um, in a in a culture that is, you know, there's like a, there's like a code of silence among fighters or or an inability to just do do media well. Like you got guys who are willing to do media and they just don't do it well. Ben Askren is willing to do media in a very clever way, first of all, in a way that buoys his profile, and he does it in a very, very compelling way. Like he's got to be top ten interviews right now. Period. Um, MMA fighting covering MMA for Yahoo. No, but but Box and Yahoo worked out like a deal where we share traffic. Measurement of leg reach. They have shown fighters getting their legs measured in one of the embedded broadcasts, excuse me, one of the embedded episodes for UFC 177, um, but yet it didn't reach the UFC 177 broadcast. And then our boy from Fight Metric says it'll make the broadcast in the next event or two. So it could be Friday, or it could be a little accepted at the Fight Pass show. I don't know, because I have some bad news at the end of this podcast, y'all. Uh, let's see. Quote, but the fights were good. Is this even a valid argument to buy pay-per-views? I mean, all you care about is a, not, is a cool knockout or a nifty choke, and you don't care about who the guys are fighting. Why do you even need the UFC, let alone UFC pay-per-view? Can't you get that from Bellator, World Series of Fighting, RFA, Titan, Cage Warrior, Shuto, and just about any other organization? And not to mention that, get on YouTube. Just, like, spend time looking up old Shuto fights on YouTube if you want to see some balls-out action. 
They have dudes you've never heard of knocking each other out, and good ones too, by the way, and getting cool subs. If the fights where good argument is used to justify buying UFC 177, can't the same be said to justify paying 60 bucks to watch a lot of Bellator cards? P.S. Why aren't the fights supposed to be good? Isn't bragging about the fights being good like bragging about being able to... Well, I can't address that question, but... Um, someone says, yeah, what did Chuck Mindenhall say? Something like, pay-per-views are sold on prospect, not retrospect. Yeah, I, I've made this point before. Everyone's like, yeah, what's the, Luke, why are you so down on these fight pass cards? Blah, blah, blah. I'm not, you know? like, But you just got to accept them for what they are. It's They're Cage Warrior shows with a UFC main and co or co-main event, and not even that. Sometimes it's just a main event. And in of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But then you go back to them, it's like, why don't you watch Cage Warriors and with the same numbers without it? Oh, it's because there's a UFC label on it. And that speaks to the strength of the UFC label. That's that's the benefit they've earned from being the 800-pound gorilla. Um, but that doesn't... That's not a claim on actual quality. You can put the UFC label on there, but you have to see it for what it is. They're trying to break into a market, so they have to open up the level of quality to make that happen. And I don't mean up, upwards, up downwards. It's just, it's just a fact. They can't. It's not. It's not being derogatory. It's just how it goes. They have to do that to make that happen on the current schedule. Um, and they'll find some gems in there too. Don't don't get me wrong, but. You know, I often find hilarious. It's like you look at the ratings for like these, some of these regional shows, and it's like nothing. It's like, well, you could put. So you're telling me you could put a UFC main event on that and put a UFC label on it, and all of a sudden everyone's interested. Why weren't you interested in it before? And sometimes these regional cards are better. It's because regional MMA has a very, very limited audience, but it can be disguised as something else in a different package. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with regional MMA, but you just have to be honest about what your preferences actually are. But but to the to the preference or to the point that Mindenhall makes and others make too. I mean everyone can be, everyone after UFC 177. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I thought it was okay. It was fine. Some of the fights were good. I, for me, the favorite was uh, uh, Tony Ferguson trying to finish the Darce and sitting to Darce. You don't see a lot of guys do that. That was kind of cool. That kid Chris Wade at the beginning of her uh, in the, the very first fight. I I really liked her. He aggressive wrestling, spiral riding. That was great. You know, no doubt about it. You know, the light heavyweight bout, or uh, I should say the heavyweight bout between Potts and Hamilton was horrible. Um, it, we really could have used Jorgensen and whatever. It was fine. Half of it was fine. Half of it was, was okay. It was, the main event was certainly better than folks think, but you guys just, you just don't, like, I don't know what to tell you. None, none of that matters in the end, you know. I mean, it matters a little bit in the sense that UFC can say we have a consistently high-quality product, and they do, you know. Um, not all the time, but we, I think we would all agree the majority of UFC shows are at least good. To, to even better, and sometimes they're amazing, right? It's the best promoter in the in the in the world, so they should be able to do that. Um, but pay-per-views specifically and fight cards, a little bit different on TV. The, the dynamic can be different, but certainly with with pay-per-view, you are offering a product to them, and they and and yes, when they take it home and they open it, so to speak, is it as good as what they had promised? That matters a little bit, but really the number one thing that matters more than anything else by a mile is the prospective ability that you can, the prospective interest rather that you can generate. That's it. That's it. Everything else after the fact, everyone's like, "Oh man, the joke's on them because they didn't spend sixty bucks afterwards." It's like, dude, they don't care. They they moved on to free college football that night. You know, um, just the reality. But the that event and all pay-per-view events, what its value is in the larger marketplace, irrespective of you as a personal fan is its ability to reach casual audiences with star power ahead of time. That's it. 
You can bellyache about casual fans. You can cry about their importance. You can say they're all wrong because they didn't watch it. They don't care what you have to think, and you don't care what they have to think. It works both ways, but that's just the, that's just the market that we live in. What can you sell me? Slips that by the first card. All pay-per-view goes live. You've got people there. That is it. The, the buck stops right there. And everyone was like, oh, my God. See, there were good fights after the fact. True, but, dude, we're talking about the best promoter in the world. The very best. Who is, who is even close to the UFC? Nobody. Nobody. Bellator is a very distant second, and they're kind of neck and neck with cage warriors in some ways. Like, the ability for the UFC to put on a show where fights are interesting is not a miracle. A child was not born. You know? No one figured out that alchemy was real. Oh my god, you actually can turn lead into gold. It's not a miracle. It's, it's a testament to the strength of their product. But guys acting like after the fact that, oh my god, it was amazing. What people are complaining about ahead of time is how interesting the food looks on paper. On the menu. And if everything doesn't look interesting on the menu, no one's going to order or they're going to walk out of the restaurant, whatever metaphor you want to take it to. You ordered it and it turned out to be better than you thought it was going to be. Hey, go leave a Yelp review or whatever. I don't even know where I'm taking this metaphor. But that's what matters the most. This isn't a business where you can like restaurants where, hey, the menu looks like crap, but oh my god, I ordered it. It was great. Go leave a Yelp review. And you can begin to develop a reputation. Fans don't have the same kind of allegiance to, to, to combative sports in that kind of way, that ability to Locally foster support. All right. Competition. Looking on the difference in quality between UFC Fight Night 50 and UFC 177, doesn't it just further prove the points that competition with the UFC is good for MMA and the UFC can put on better shows if they have an attempt to? I certainly think that the fewer shows that Scott Coker is going to run, 16 in 2015 for Bellator, each one of those will be better than almost any of the shows that everyone revenue is running, with some exception, obviously. There's going to be bad shows that they run, too. And it's a lower-level product than the UFC. But anybody that can get the UFC to battle for customers is doing the right thing for you and everybody else. Because it's going to make the UFC better. It's going to make themselves better. They're going to have to fine-tune their product. They're going to have to find creative ways to reach you. And the UFC is going to respond in kind. And we know the UFC has the ability to do it. The UFC is good at any, any number of things, not least of which is competing with other promoters. We know they're good at it when, 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 uh, when a competitor or some sort of market force can legitimately force the UFC to act to gather the interest of customers. Everybody wins, including, I would argue, the fighters. Luke, can you please meditate? Oh, I'm sorry. Luke, can you please mediate and get Ben Askren to the UFC? Yes, I'm sure they profoundly care about my argument for getting Ben. I mean, they're gonna, either they're going to sign him or they're not. You know, sounds like they eventually might, but you know, old Ben is playing hard to get. Well, that's gross. Dillashaw and the bantamweight division. Is TJ the best 135-pounder in the world today? Yes. Who are, who are, in your opinion, the top five guys in the weight class, not from a ranking standpoint, but based on skill and ability, not just UFC but other organizations? Well, gosh, uh, Eduardo Dantas is uh, effing beast. Um, I would put him probably top five in the world. Who am I missing outside of that? Let me see. 
God, it's been so long since I thought of ranking outside of UFC. That's crazy. I am. I am. I am. I've done a poor job of that. Hang on. God, I'm looking at old rankings and uh, Dominic Cruz at the top. That sucks. Let's see. Let's see. Are they calling him Thrillashaw now? Yeah, let's see. Before I even look at this, Dantas would certainly be there. Eduardo Dantas. Anybody in Walters are fine. I'm not thinking of right away. God, it used to be the case that, you know, Shuto would have one, or certainly a Japanese promotion would have one. Oh, man, I can't even think of anybody. Maybe, maybe Rafael Silva, maybe? No. Oh, Marlon Moraes, of course. Moraes. How could I forget? Jesus. Yeah, so those have to be the best two. I'm sorry, in terms of ranking the top five, I don't know. I have to think about it a little longer, but... Um, well, that's crazy. You only have two bantamweights in the top ten outside the UFC. God, they got to... That's a strong product. Um, there's like a thousand questions in this thing. In the post-fight scrum, Dana White mentioned pretty confidently that Faber and TJ would fight each other if Faber got himself in a position to challenge for the belt. What do you think? I'm actually warming up to the idea. You know what's kind of funny? He didn't corner TJ. Dwayne Ludwig did. I mentioned this before. I can't find anybody else who um, at Team Alpha Mel who has any issue with, with Dwayne Ludwig. Not one. Maybe they don't have the same connection that TJ has necessarily, but they don't have the same issue. Now, Benavides wasn't cornering either. I don't know. I wouldn't read too much into it at the same time. I don't think that favors on the outs. I mean, favors the king of that, that team for any number of reasons, but um, if push came to shove, I don't think that's the craziest thought in the world. I think that there is room for that to happen. Uh, UFC not paying Barrow. What do you make of the UFC not paying Barrow show money? Guillermo Cruz tweeted it was unfair, but is it really unreasonable to hold Barrow accountable for dropping out of the main event? That is a very tough question. Because here's the problem with that, you know. Um, first of all, he's an independent contractor. He failed to own up to his end of the bargain from a contractual standpoint. He's not owed a dime, you know, just just on that level. Now, I know we're accustomed to the UFC having a bit of a view of charity over things. And so guys like Burchak, for example, not his fault, but he didn't actually, technically he didn't fulfill the terms of his contract in the sense that he didn't actually go out and fight as a means of getting paid, yet they still gave him his win. Uh, his, his show and win money. Okay, fair enough. But Burrell, on the one hand, I'm the first guy to tell you that I think guys are underpaid. But I think that's an issue that has to be addressed in an abstract way. We have to come to terms about um, how guys should be paid. And when I say abstract, I mean understanding the ideas and the motivations behind that. And Then there has to sort of in reality be a mechanism to force change. Absent that, I don't think it's impossible to have a conversation about fighters who I agree in a general abstract sense should be paid more, nevertheless contractually failing themselves and the organization. Because understand what he did. He didn't just remove his own ability to compete, so therefore he didn't uphold his end of the bout agreement. Right? He screwed the UFC generally. 
That card was never, even with Demetrius Johnson on it, was never going to be a pay-per-view blockbuster. But you'd have to assume that with Demetrius Johnson on it and Henry Burrell against TJ Dillashaw, probably could have done more than a couple hundred thousand on pay-per-view, which is enough to make money. Again, that's not his fault that Cormier got injured, or uh, Don Jones got injured, they had to move that fight. But that really puts the responsibility on you and TJ and that old fight you had to sell it, and you ruined everything. Well, and not only did you ruin everything, you ruined everything before the UFC had a chance to do anything about it. They had to cannibalize their own card, risk, because remember, putting Joe Soto in there was unbelievably risky. We found out Joe Soto's not a bad fighter. He's not a championship caliber fighter, but he's not a, by any stretch a bad fighter. He's a very good one. And moreover, what could have happened in that fight was that even if TJ had won, there a, a scenario could have played out where Joe Soto won, or lost rather, but did just enough to make Dillashaw look bad as a champion. Now he didn't, uh, although there were moments there where he was getting lit up a little bit, but in the end, TJ did what he was expected to do, and of course he closed the show in the fifth round. So that's all fine, but UFC went into that event with that kind of risk hanging over their head, and it was because of Henan Barat. So I agree that each time he fulfills his contractual obligation, he should be paid more, but he is an independent contractor. And by the way, a plumber is an independent contractor. And if he shows up, and you have, or rather if you have an agreement for him to do something on a certain date in a certain way, and he signs it, and he utterly fails to do it, you don't owe him a dime. You don't, you know. I don't think that this conversation about whether Burrell's errors should be wrapped up in the larger conversation about whether fighters are adequately paid um, relative to the UFC's revenues and profits in terms of what other talent make in other sports organizations or sports. Those are two separate conversations. Because even if Burrell was like, the reason why one problem gets sucked into the other is because you can say, well, this guy's not paid a whole lot. They live in my, I don't know about Burrell in particular, but I know for a fact some of these guys, you know, lower down the card maybe, but I, I don't know. I don't know about Burrell's card, but a lot of these guys are financially prudent or don't make a lot of money to do much beyond live check to check. It's going to be hard for him to swallow all these costs. He paid for a camp. He's got no way to, to, to get his money back. I'm sympathetic to that, but dude, who, who is at fault here? <laughs> Who's at fault here? It ain't UFC. You know? And y'all know I'm critical of UFC plenty of times. Man, this is Burrell's. This is his bad. And it's his bad in a dramatic way. He jeopardized his own health. He didn't end up his end of the bargain. And he affected the entire event in a negative way by having to do this last-minute crazy dash to find an opponent that could have absolutely devastated um, what the UFC was trying to do with TJ Dillashaw. Boy, you want to talk about not earning your paycheck. Um, how many UFC pay-per-views did the U or how many pay-per-views did the UFC lose because Burrell didn't make make weight? Well, they spent all those money on all those commercials, you know, bus back ads and time buys, and in terms of the, you know, and all, and all the all the money MSO spent. I mean, they must have spent millions of dollars on on promoting that event. And just to have it all go away the last second there because of Burrell. I mean, I know the UFC, sometimes when guys have these issues, they still help them out a little bit, but are you world the champion? This is a championship fight. Like, dude, you messed up bad. Yeah, versus Rousey. 
Um, so it says, however, based on that first round, I just can't see how she would compete with Rousey. Rousey is stronger, faster, and overall just a better athlete. Yeah, we covered it at the beginning of the event, but you get the idea. Uh, so it says, after signing Falcao to Manchester United, are they your favorite EPL team now? No, but I have to buy the jersey because I love Falcao. Um, all right. What are your chances of Rothwell or Overeem getting cut or a new contract with a loss this weekend? Uh, Overeem, for sure, I don't think will be cut. I haven't even kept up with Rothwell's record. Let me see what he's put up to. This is how it is now. I mean, I used to know all these guys' records like by heart. It's just impossible to keep up with now. Oh, he has a little bit of a brain and bear at 164, and also after he popped positive. Oh, they live levels of testosterone. Um, he could get cut. He's been sort of 50-50. They might keep him around. It's hard to say. Like, on the one hand, you could see him getting cut because he's sort of on the downswing. On the other hand, he's a bit of a banger. On the other third hand, he's a heavyweight. Uh, there's not many of them. On the fourth, the expanded schedule makes leniency sometimes a more viable option. We'll just have to see. Gunnar Nelson versus Rick Story. Luke, your thoughts on this fight? Who do you favor? Who do you see it playing out? Oh, man, it's a crazy fight. Um, what does a win for Gunnar do for him? Played the 5 in the UFC and undefeated in my career. So here's what I would say. I would say that Rick Story is for sure the better wrestler, the harder puncher. Um, the more, I don't know if he's the better athlete, but the more bruising athlete. But as a mat grappler, so once the takedown has been established, um, Gunnar Nelson has a monster advantage over Rick Story. I truly believe that. I think Rick Story is a little bit error prone. And I think, I think Rick Story is a bit of a rhythm fighter, and I think that Rick Story, one of my criticisms of him would be like, I think, again, I think he's a super talented guy. I mean, I, I really enjoy, and I think he's strong as an ox, man. I'll never forget submitting Brian Foster with a head and arm choke inside Foster's guard, which you have no idea how hard that is to do. You have to be an ox to do that, okay? But in terms of sort of reacting, reactive grappling decisions, where to go, how to move, um, well, Gunnar Nelson's just miles ahead of him there. So I worry about him. I worry about him. So Gunnar Nelson's going to play on the outside a little bit. I do his sort of karate stance thing, and... Story's going to press forward and try to find spaces to hit him. I think eventually, though, they're going to clinch. And once they clinch, if they go to the ground, it's just going to be Gunnar Nelson's thing, you know. But that's going to be the issue. Story's going to have a hard time, I think, closing that distance on him. Um, that's going to be a close one, though. A very close one. I don't really know who to favor this far out. It's going to be entirely... The, it's going to be up to Story to close the distance, and it's going to be up to... Nelson to show enough movement to to and angles to pot shot and get away or surrender the takedown. Uh, media versus the UFC. Is there a line that needs to be drawn between MMA journalism and sensationalism? By who? I mean, yeah, some people weren't going to buy UFC 177, but some were. Where does it say that journalists should be writing, don't buy this pay-per-view? Where does it say they shouldn't? I think it's time to find a new job when your personal feelings start coercing fans who think they are reading something truthful and accurate. I don't even know where to start with that that comment. Um, 
First of all, you know, I'll tell you this about anything. Phones, sodas, well, less so sodas, because people, people some, someone did send me an email being like, oh, you should drink Blue Sky sodas, and I do. Um, I'm actually a big believer that the soda industry is very similar to the beer industry, where it's this illusion of diversity, but it's, it's mostly just a couple of companies. But, um, but they have so many here for free. It's like trying to cut down on costs, y'all. Blue Sky is expensive. Anyway, uh, I would always tell you one way or the other, if you like something, get out there and pay for it. If you don't, don't. You know, that I would for everything, for anything. That's how life should be. You should always make decisions as a customer as a means of supporting a company you believe in or a particular product, or even if it's a company you believe in, like Apple, but you don't think the new uh, update is all that great to Siri or whatever, you don't think the iPhone 6 is, is a good product, you should not buy it. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with a journalist expressing his opinion about him stating a case for why a certain product, be it a tech reviewer, be it an MMA journalist, be it a um, anything, any kind of food reviewer, if they don't think something is worth buying or spending your money on, I think it'd actually be kind of wrong to not say anything about it. I think the you know I understand the UFC's position; they're not too happy about it. Uh, you know, they're just we just I, feel, I think this is a particular case with the media and UFC simply don't see eye to eye. Um, I don't know what else to really say about it, but like this whole thing where like, well, media should be objective. You have never had objective media, not in MMA or anywhere else. You have some people who pretend to be objective. Well, I don't really know what the truth is, so I'm going to let him have his say and her have her say, and I'm just going to stand out of this. You know, these these this is not this is not journalism. That's well, it's called the view from nowhere. That's what that's called. Jay Rosen's famous. NYU professor who perfected that. I don't believe in that at all. Everyone has their own subjectivity. The only problem is you have to find ways to defend it, and you have to be honest about it and upfront about it. That's all you have to do. Everything else is just a lie, an illusion. Oh, I'm, I'm an, I try to remain objective. No, you don't. It's impossible for you to do that, and you have your own biases, fair or unfair. If you're an American, you're naturally probably, not in all cases, but many. Uh, Edward Said wrote about this one time, about how news in America is just by own virtue of being American, going to have a certain perspective on foreign policy that some of the other countries won't share. The Americans sort of can't comprehend that. And it goes for the same way. The English are going to have a certain perspective on news that derives from their position as being English and the history and traditions and customs and beliefs societally that come from that. That's, that's how it works. This idea that we all come to that, well, I'm tabula rasa, I don't, have any, I don't have any prejudices. We all do. We all do. Only thing you can do is be honest about them and try to be fair in the process. That's it. That's the only thing you can do. I've never come to you ever as objective, and I never, ever will. If you're coming here to find objective analysis, you're never going to get it. You're going to get my analysis for all its benefits and for all its flaws, and I'm sure there's a little bit on either side. Um, that's just a fact. I'm going to try and give you facts and make interpretations about that. I don't think the two are... People think subjectivity means no facts. No. It means your interpretation of the facts. And there are some guys who are better at being subjective than others. Some guys suck at being subjective. They can't do it at all. They might as well try to be objective because they're so bad at it. But being what you want is somebody who has their own biases, who's upfront about it, and nevertheless still makes an attempt to be scholarly and fair about it. And there's absolutely nothing contradictory about that. That is, that is, that is there's nothing absolutely wrong with that. Whether sports organizations like the NFL or FIU, who didn't want that Miami Herald reporter there, 
understand that or believe in that, I don't know. I have a job to do. I have a perspective to do, and it's mine. And I can't do anything else but that. If bad things happen, then bad things happen. I, you know, then they were made. They were going to anyway. But the last thing I'm going to do, you know, and if you want to buy 177, people ask me like, should I buy 177? I can't answer that for you. Only you can answer that. That that's my interpretation of it anyway. If you like those guys, if you like T.J. Dillashaw, I would never tell you not to buy that. But if you don't think it's worth value, in any walk of life, you shouldn't buy things you don't think are worth value. Who does that? Who buys things they don't think are worth value? Guys, asking. True false. It's promotional malpractice not to do Bisping Rockhold. I certainly think so. The only one benefiting from the four horse women is Betchkoya. No, I think they're all kind of benefiting from it a little bit. Uh, it was fair for the UFC not to pay Barrow a dime. Yeah. Yes. True. Uh, with the loss, Overeem is in danger of getting cut. I don't think so. Ben Askren is in the UFC by the end of 2015. Maybe. Maybe. Um, Answer the last one. Uh, I, know. I don't like to talk to our colleagues on this. I'll just mention that... Um, Someone says, Dana White went after Dave Meltzer on the gate numbers two weeks before the event. Have you heard any different? I would just say Dave posted a response. You're welcome to read it. It's on his uh, Wrestling Observer website where he explains his position. I'm sympathetic to Dave's position, but you should go and read it for yourself. Uh, any indications on pay-per-view numbers for 177? They won't be out for a little while. They don't come out right away. It's not like rate, you know, TV ratings. It's like an event airs on Saturday, and then by Sunday or Monday you have some idea. Pay-per-views take a little while to trickle in, so it could be a little while. Um, why Croatia hasn't been a uh, host of a UFC event in more than the decades of Krokop fighting and now with uh, Stipe Miocic and Arena Zagreb on every fighting event has its tickets sold out. It's a new arena and quite huge potential uh, for UFC fight night hosting. It's a good question. Uh, I actually remember I went to Arena Zagreb when I went to uh, the Krokop um, uh, Remy fight. Um, it was amazing. The place was nearly sold out. It's a very nice arena. It's not hard to get to. Traffic is not that bad in Zagreb at all. The people are unbelievably friendly. For a European city, it's very affordable. It's got a lot of modernization that's happened there. There is public transportation. Everybody, I don't know if I mentioned this already, everybody speaks English. Like You can get in a cab. Even your cab driver will speak enough English to get you from point A to point B. You know? It's great. It's great. I have an, it could be an issue with local TV deals. Um, the other thing about it is that when you stage events there, you would probably want to fill up a lot of undercard fighters to get them to show up. There's not a lot of Croatian undercard fighters that you could really do that with. Um, also, I, you know, there's because price points are low relative to what the U.S. dollar value is worth, your profits are going to be lower as well. So there's an issue there. Uh, I think that probably the U.S. is grappling with. But I would say that they'll eventually go to Arena Zagreb. I don't think it's in any way crazy. Or maybe Dubrovnik, you know, run on, run on the uh, you know, sort of one of the coastal cities. Um, but yeah, dude, I recommend everyone, if you can get a chance to go out there, you know, I don't say this is like everyone, like, a tree, like money grows on trees, but if you ever do get the opportunity to go to Croatia, the people there, it's like they are the unbelievably friendliest. 
crime there is not nearly all that bad. It's 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 amazing. Um, So why don't I ever go to USC shows and ask questions? I go to USC shows very, very occasionally, um, and when I do, I ask questions. But you know, there's plenty of guys in the media who do that just fine. They don't need me to do that all the time. Uh, let's see. What happens with gatekeeper roles of Junior Dos Santos and Antonio Silva if Verdun wins the heavyweight? Uh, well, if Verdun wins, they either going to do a, a, a rematch, but otherwise. Um, well, they might do a rematch. I don't know, man. For doing ones, it shakes things up. You can make a fresh set of matchups. Um, they would probably do Junior Dos Santos since the two have history. JDS would be the win, of course, but um, they could probably do that pretty quickly. This, but yeah, it would shake up all kinds of things. You have mentioned before that UFC has been friendly with ESPN so they could have leverage when their TV deal is up. Is this a two-man race between Fox and ESPN, or can you see a dark horse like NBC and CBS getting in the mix? Um, I don't see anyone else besides Fox and ESPN getting in the mix. Now, I know that things could have been a little bit differently. Um, remember when there was, there was talks about UFC buying G4 and becoming a UFC network? Um, and that was part of the, sort of the NBC Comcast family. But here's what I would say. I think, I think one of things you have to look at with ESPN and Fox, and now especially with Fox, but also ESPN, it's not just that there are these large sporting organizations, because there's Fox Sports generally, there's what the sort of the digital hub and then there's the television end and things like that, um, where they have the ability, they have the core competencies to showcase the highest level of fight sports in the world. Um, ESPN has the ability to do that on the digital end and on the television end. NBC, they could do that, but they would have to build up to it. CBS has gotten in the game a little bit with CBS Sports, and of course NBC has done uh, World Series the fighting at least a little bit, and they would have done uh, they've done boxing, but they don't really have that deep infrastructure to do that. They have to hire a bunch of people away from these other places that have done fight sports, be able to sort of competently move forward in that direction, and that's difficult to do. That can create problems. ESPN would have much less of an issue in doing that, um, and they would have some though. They'd have to build up a little bit, but ESPN could do that pretty easily. It's also if you did sign with NBC and you had to rely on them to hire away talent. Who would you rather be with, ESPN, who's hiring away talent, or NBC Sports, who's hiring away talent? I mean, NBC Sports and CBS Sports, those are separate channels, but as sporting entities, certainly NBC's in the game with football and any number of things in the Olympics, but with fight sports, it's a particular set of core competencies, and it's knowing the right people who have the right experience. And Fox has all of that for them right now, which makes them an, a great candidate. ESPN, I think, provides wider exposure, and then the ability to either retain or acquire the right set of uh, labor assets to move forward. That to me would be the big question. Everyone's got high def. Everyone can shoot in a certain way. Everyone can make all those things happen, but who has enough of a background or the ability to get who you need to, to move forward with it? Um, who's got a great digital hub to marry the two? Who can really provide sort of comprehensive 360 access that um, ESPN and Fox can provide? Not, not many people. Like who, who goes to NBA? I mean, who go to pro football talk as a hub maybe, but NBC Sports as an entity just doesn't carry the same cachet as Fox Sports, and certainly not ESPN. Now, some people have asked, what about splitting up stuff, where UFC puts some of their cards on Fox and some of their cards on ESPN? I mean, never say never, but I think I don't think that'd be possible in a world where they have Fight Pass shows and Fight Night shows and pay-per-view 
how would you split up the fight night shows? I mean, you could, I suppose, but that would be really difficult for consumers to follow. Moreover, if the UFC is looking to go anywhere, it's up and up. It's not to newer platforms like NBC Sports or CBS Sports. And CBS Sports, as a, as a network, you know, hardly gets any ratings. It's brand new. I'm not saying they won't or that it's bad. Just that's where they're at. Um, they would want to go to a place where they can, they can leverage existing leeches, you know. Uh, let's move to Twitter first a little bit here. If we can. How do you think Cejudo will do at Bantamweight? Not very well. What is my favorite soda? Uh, I don't know if I have one. How many cans of soda do you drink in one day? I mean, I have two or three a week. Have you heard anything about Glory's next event? I have not. What do you think about fighters not knowing who they're fighting until the weigh-ins? It's not a way to promote a product. That's what they do in wrestling, in amateur wrestling. You know, you don't know who you're going to face when you show up to that tournament and you do your weigh-ins. And they're having promotional issues, yeah? Um... Me versus Tito in a jiu-jitsu competition. Who wins? Tito, easily. Well, let's see. Redefining top control. Top doesn't mean control like in BJJ. It's is MMA totally different in reference to Tony versus Danny. Um, it is a little bit different because top control won't necessarily... Um, but look at what Danny's argument was. He, he's sort of right in a way, right? I scored the bout for Ferguson two rounds to one. I thought he lost the third round but won the first two. But what did Danny say? Danny argued, well, I, I don't know, he kind of was hemming and hawing about it a little bit, but he said, I, I held the guy down. I held a grown man on his back for X amount of time. By the way, that's really hard to do. That's really hard to do. But even in jiu-jitsu, holding somebody down... Uh, it's, it's, it requires a ton of effort, but that's not how you accrue points. You accrue points for passing, taking the back, reversals. Um, you get advantages for near sweeps or near subs, things like that. So he's right in the sense it's like, dude, you know how hard it is to make a grown man lay flat on his back for an extended period of time? He's right. That's very, very difficult to do. The question is, what combative value is that? It has some value. You did take away his ability to do anything by also taking away your ability to do anything. That is not the same as side control. That is certainly not the same as back control. And that's why, to me, if you hold someone down for, let's say, three minutes, I will count that as something. You did do something. You removed this person's offense. You, you, and by the way, you never ever want to be flat on your back. You always want to be on a hip, man. Unless you're working full guard, in which case even then you're sort of crunched, right? You're not laying flat on your shoulders. Um, that's what you have to do. And so he just didn't feel like there was anything to it. There wasn't, I mean, at the, now, towards the end of that round, remember, he went for the head knock triangle, was passing. Okay, fair enough. Count that. I gave him that round. But generally speaking, simply holding position, and he found, and by the way, he, a lot of times, for example, with the darts, he found himself in side control. That doesn't, to me, count as much. Like, you didn't move that way. You didn't force him to give that to you. Um, not saying it doesn't count that he found himself in side control, but relative to earning your way there, it's not the same. 
his ovary shrinking. Everyone says he is. We're going to find out on weigh-ins day. Those pictures are always so hard to tell. It's like one picture's on Instagram in the middle of the day. The next picture's like in the gym, middle of the, like, uh, you know, with just the uh, uh, fluorescent lights on. It's hard to tell. Let's see. Let's see. Someone asked this. I, saw, I heard about this as well. I did not see it. Did you see Benson Henderson with a toothpick immediately after the fight? I've seen the gif of the, uh, as well, the left hook that this end just rocked him with, and you can clearly see the toothpick sticking out of his left side, left side of his mouth. All right, listen. If you're an athletic commission, you need to be checking his mouth. And if you're not, the rest of that is on Ben Henderson. He should not be fighting with a toothpick in his mouth. It's insane that he's doing that. It's unbelievably risky. I don't know why he thinks it's okay. But at this point, if he's insistent on fighting with it, and the commissions don't see it, if I'm not. I am certainly not wishing any injury on him ever. But talk about playing with fire. I hope nothing happens to him. But if something does, my God, man, who is it? Who is responsible for that? Someone says um, Castillo was controlling the fight. He was not controlling the fight. It was not until the third round. It was Ferguson who was, even if he wasn't able to generate much, was the one trying to do things, trying to throw elbows, trying to push, trying to get his hips away, trying to do something to make it all matter. Uh, favorite fight on the undercard this weekend? Is there anything to watch out for that people are overlooking in a way? Uh, Rodrigo Dan versus Eli Akinta. Let's see if Al can rebound. Uh, Kamozi versus Natal. Not particularly of interest to me. Uh, Beal versus Matsuda. Uh, Matsuda is a beast. Uh, and Chaz Skelly versus uh, Sean Soriano. Um, none of that's particularly my favorite, but Scoggins Moraga is the one I'm going to get my eye on. Did you win the grappling exchanges with Lazan and Chiesa and Lentz versus Oliveira? Boy, that's going to be crazy. Um, I think Lazan hustles more, but I think Kiesa has good balance on top. So you, I think you might find Lazan either if he can't get to Kiesa's back playing guard. By the way, he's got a, he's got a great guard. Remember, he submitted Kurt Warburton with a Kimura inside the triangle that he had him in. That's nasty. Um, so we'll see about that. Plus, Kiesa is a little bit a little bit lighter, fleeter of foot, I think. Um, or you know, I don't mean he's like actually lighter, but he can sort of move in a more athletic way. Uh, Lentz and Oliveira, obviously Oliveira's going to be playing guard on there or looking for the back. Lentz, um, a monster on top. Um, that's what I would say. Someone asking, is UFC shooting himself in the foot with a stacked card? I mean, could you... The guy's name is Donkzilla. I'm sure you're a nice guy, Donkzilla, but you're asking the most Donkzilla question ever. Dave, oh, good question. Dave Jansen last fought 18 months ago. Why hasn't his name popped up in title talk? Or, at the minimum, why isn't he being offered tune-up fights like Strauss took between his tournament victory and subsequent title fights? He was injured. He tore his ACL, and I think he's been on the mend. Poor, poor Dave Jansen. You want to talk about all of the fallout. I mean, Eddie Alvarez got it bad. I'm not saying he didn't, but Dave Jansen has been utterly forgotten. Forgotten. So I know he tore his ACL and that put him out for a little while, but he is. Owed, I mean, he, and I think Coker has to has to honor it. He's owed a title shot. 
Um, how are you going to you know, promote a guy like Dave Jansen who nobody knows and hasn't been active at all? I, I just don't know. Or maybe they let him go. I don't know. What are your thoughts after a couple of weeks of the Ultimate Fighter Latin America? As a non-Mexican Latino, this program feels properly and intrinsically Latin American, yes. There's a heavy focus on the Mexican versus rest of Latin American angle, but honestly, everyone kind of hates Mexicans and the rest of the continent. <laughs> that wasn't me. He says that, not me. I have watched the other 20-ish seasons of this show, but this one still feels special to me. Yeah, I've enjoyed it so far. The fight quality is what it is. It's, you know, low-level tough action. Uh, it's fine. Um, I mentioned before that they were playing up the rivalry, and now what I've witnessed in the second week is they're playing up much more... I would say, I mean, we'll see how the season goes. I can't make any claims. But, for example, um, and by the way, I didn't watch Tough China at all. So, I mean, make of that what you will. But the Mexicans are getting a lot of run, both their flaws and their, and their strengths and everything. They're getting a lot more play, I feel like, than the Latin Americans are. Uh, maybe it's intentional. Maybe it's the way just things worked out naturally. I'm not accusing any producers of, you know, editing malpractice. I'm simply saying that's the way it's coming across. And moreover, like here's a perfect example, Eddie, uh, Freddie Serrano, who was the greatest wrestler ever out of Colombia, I did an interview with him on this very website, MMAfighting.com, I call him El Profe, right, uh, out of uh, Bogota. And um, him and um, uh, there's another Colombian on the, on the squad as well. Freddie is fighting next week, and you have not heard him speak on camera yet. Now, does, I don't know what that means about him winning or losing. Maybe it portends him losing. I don't know. But And by the way, I think his, his intention is to drop the flyweight. He's a very small bantamweight. But, you, but that's my point, right? Like, um, you have a guy fighting next week against another Mexican, and you've seen the Mexican talk a lot. You've seen him dance in his underwear. You haven't heard one word from Freddy Serrano. Kind of weird if you ask me, especially since, as a guy who's dropping the flyweight, he could potentially hang around UFC. Um, as they want to move further into Latin America. I don't know. Maybe, or maybe they don't. I don't know. We'll see what happens with the show. But I'll tell you right now, that's sort of the inkling that I'm getting. One more and we'll get out of here. What are your thoughts on Ruan Potts? He has no business in the championship. Might be a good guy. Maybe he can get back there. But Why is the show so short so that you, uh, for MMA Beat so that you guys will want to see more of it? Um... Uh, Luke, compared to other substandard UFC cards, do the craziness surrounding UFC 177 do anything to increase the web traffic compared to other forgettable fight cards? No. And you seem to be so annoyed or tired today. Have you had enough of this chat or MMA in general? No, I'm not. Well, I am tired, but I'm not annoyed. Um, I, I, uh, I've got a ton of phlegm, and I keep snoring at night and waking my wife up, which means she's waking me up, which means I haven't had a good night of sleep in like four or five nights. So I'm not annoyed, but I am tired. There you go. All right, so we have to get out of here. Guys, we're going to have coverage of Bellator 123. We're going to have people at UFC Fight Night 50. Um, Saturday is Invicta. Sunday, Technique Talk comes out. You can't miss that. Get ready for that. But here's the bad news, y'all. And I'm sorry to break it to you, but I have to do it. Um, I will not be back for three weeks. Yes, three weeks. I will not be back till the 20, 24th of September, I don't believe. 
I'm going on vacation out of the country starting Monday. I haven't had a vacation in over 13 months. Not that that's the end of the world, not that you should care. I'm just telling you what the facts are. Um, I'm leaving the country, going to Turkey, going to Istanbul with my wife. So there's no chat next week, and there's no chat the week after that. There's a chat the third week when I get back in September. So I'm going to miss a couple of UFC events, nothing too big. I get back in time for 178. We'll preview that when I get back. Get on iTunes. Subscribe. Give me a nice rating or a nice review. Please do the same on Stitcher. Thank you for watching this. I really appreciate it. You guys are the best. I'm so uh, appreciative of your support. See you in a few weeks. Love you guys. Until next time, stay frosty.